Good morning to our lockdown listeners from a sunny Dorset. Apologies for any background noise from birds singing in the trees, but I couldn't resist. It is, as one of our podcasters has termed me, your very own jurisprudential Jimmy Young with another piping hot podcast, serving you the freshest in legal decisions from the banking world. I'm joined this morning, as ever, by my co-host, Kerry Morgan. Good morning, Kerry. Good morning, John. And from behind the glass by Alice White, who makes this all happen. Good morning, Alice. I'm getting a wave. Our guest speaker this morning is an accomplished litigator from our banking team, rising star Nick Patmore. Uh, good morning, Nick. Um, I hear that uh, building sites are reopening uh, shortly around the UK, and it's apt against that backdrop they were opening with a construction case, a contractual construction case. Over to you, Kerry. That's right, John. So we're kicking off today um, with the case Bearings and Deutsche Trustee in the Court of Appeal. And as you said, this is a case on contractual construction. So we don't need to delve too far into the facts of this case. The main point to know is that the question for the Court of Appeal was the interpretation of documents in a collateralized loan obligation or CLO transaction specifically whether an incentive fee over and above an ongoing management fee was payable to a collateral manager. And in a nutshell, where the note holders had exercised their right of early redemption uh, because the transaction had not performed as hoped, the court said the additional incentive fee was not payable to the collateral manager. So I thought I'd flag this one for your attention because issues of interpretation of complex financial agreements always catch my eye. And what interested me about this decision was not so much how it would or could be followed in other CLO transactions. The facts of this case are in fact quite distinct. The interest really comes from looking at the approach the court took to applying the well-established principles of contractual interpretation to complex financial transactions and documentation. It's probably worth, um, Kerry, giving our podcast as a a reminder of what those well-established principles are. Yep, of course. Um, So the cases to have at the front of your mind when considering contractual construction are the three Supreme Court decisions in Rainy Sky, Arnold and Britain and Wood and Capita. So I like to remember them by the sentence, it always rains in the wood in Britain. Sounds a bit like law school revision, Kerry. I mean, I don't know how litigious Malcolm Arnold or Benjamin Britain were or indeed if they ever met so Henry Wood under a rainy sky, but if they did, you'd be laughing. Anyway, for those of you with a musical bent, that might, might be another way of remembering it. Very good, John. Yeah. Um, so for, for me, anyway, it's an easy way to remember the cases in this area. Um, I won't recite in detail the current approach to interpretation. The starting point is, as always, an objective understanding of the language that the parties have used in its appropriate context. But the present case highlights the court's approach approach where the context is a traded instrument which will exist for a long time and pass through many hands. So in these sorts of instruments, the court will take a much more textual analysis, emphasising the importance of the words used. The court will then conduct an iterative process, checking the rival meanings against other provisions and investigating their commercial consequences. Basically, the factual matrix is less relevant in cases of this type. Now, I did the blog post on this decision with you and John, and I was struck by how short the Court of Appeals judgment was. A robust but short form judgment is how I think we put it, Nick. 
Yeah, absolutely right, John. Um, and it does raise an interesting question. We we so often see contractual construction cases being appealed. In fact, we often cover high court cases because we know that they're going to in inevitably end up in the court of appeal. I think losing parties um, may well think they they should just have another throw of the dice um, and parties are often given permission to appeal because contractual interpretation is not an exact science so whether the decision is right or wrong depends on how the various tests have been applied so i wonder if the court of appeals willingness to deal with this case in a short form judgment indicates that perhaps the tide is turning here possibly this will lead to a more reluctance in giving permission to appeal contractual interpretation judgments uh, I will stay alert for any trend of this kind and keep you posted. Uh, thank you, Kerry. Please do. The, these um, reports of contractual construction uh, have a strong following from our podcasters and I think be very interested to hear further developments. And I think, as ever, there's a link in the blog, blog post on this judgment in the show notes. Now, while it might be business as usual for contractual construction principles, the same can't be said for duties of care. Uh, a novel, perhaps unexpected duty of care arose in the uh, High Court decision in uh, Rehan against Ernst & Young, which I'll take for our deep dive this month. So just to emphasise before I get into the facts, this is a first instance decision and therefore um, uh, could be overruled um, or another uh, High Court judge might reach a very different uh, decision on similar facts. So the, the case involved a claim by um, a Dubai-based former uh, Ernst & Young partner, Mr. Rehan, who publicly blew the whistle on suspected irregularities arising out of an audit of a client in Dubai. And in summary, the High Court found that Ernst & Young owed and breached a novel duty of care which it owed to Mr. Rehan, um, and that it was a duty to protect him against economic loss by providing what they termed an ethically safe working environment. Now, while the facts of this case arose in an audit and accounting context, a number of features of the decision will be of concern for global financial services firms more generally. So I'm going to talk about the wider implications in a bit more detail. So if we look first at the scope of the duty of care, there is, of course, as you'll all know, an established tortious duty of care for an employer to protect against physical injury by providing a physically safe working environment. In the court's view, it wasn't a huge leap from the existing type of duty of care to imposing a duty of care to protect against economic loss by providing an ethically safe work environment, free from professional misconduct. Seems like quite a jump to me, John. Yeah, well, indeed. Uh, the court justified uh, imposing this novel duty uh, by the need to fill the gap, as they termed it, in uh, whistleblower protection. So again, just to recite the facts, the claimant in this case lived and worked outside the UK in Dubai and therefore could not seek a remedy under the UK whistleblower legislation. And the court was at pains to emphasise that there wouldn't be many cases where this sort of lacuna filling uh, would be needed. Yeah, it's interesting the way the court painted this decision as having such a limited application. It, well, indeed, and I, I suppose to that extent that, that there is some theory behind it, but I'll, I imagine there'll be some concerns about potential parallels for other industries. The reality is that um, employees in certain jurisdictions may face pressures to act in a corrupt way outside the audits or indeed wider accountancy world. So there's, of course, a risk this won't be confined um, to the circumstances the court envisaged. 
But I think the court's view of the case being exceptional hinges more on the fact that English law applied in circumstances where the UK whistleblower legislation did not. And that links into another interesting aspect of the case, and that's the identity of the defendant entities. Uh, all four of the defendants were UK-based Ernst & Young entities. So presumably the whistleblower in this case had no contractual relationship with any of them because he was a partner in Dubai. That's right, Nick. Hence the need to establish that they owed him a duty of care. Yeah, that, that's precisely right. Um, and so there was much debate over whether the various acts underpinning the claims were done by or on behalf of any of the UK EY defendants. This probably isn't the best forum for me to go into the court's detailed observations on the defendants, but there's one surprising line perhaps from the judgment which I'll quote. It's a pretty punchy statement. The court said that it was, quote, not especially concerned with the precise contractual position of the claimant within the EY organisation. Um, so the, the key takeaway point is that overall the court concluded that the various uh, Ernst & Young officers were acting in concert with one another. And so it found that all four UK defendant entities were liable to the whistleblower. It was quite a creative judgment, um, I think it's fair to say, and rather a liberal approach to the idea of separate corporate personality. So, John, I'd be interested in your thoughts on litigation risk for financial institutions arising from this decision. Yes, thanks, Kerry. I think the key concern is that if the duty of care to provide an ethically safe working environment is extended beyond the audit and accounting context, um, then it may pose risk for corporations in a global network, uh, most obviously in respect of whistleblowing allegations uh, arising out of uh, activities of overseas subsidiaries, but you can stretch that logic out to other circumstances as well. Great summary. Thanks, John. I, I believe we have a blog post on this one. Yes, and you can find a link uh, in the show notes. We we've also given some thought as to how this decision interacts with the principles of parent company responsibility more generally, uh, focusing on the key risk for financial institutions. So if you're interested, podcasters, in that sort of analysis, please feel free to drop uh, an email uh, to either me or Kerry. Okay, uh, now we're going to move on to uh, procedural developments. Um, it had to come up at some point. Uh, we've tried to keep it out, but I promise we'll only mention it once. Uh, and it's COVID-19, uh, which takes centre stage in the next case, uh, which Nick will talk us through before giving us an update on a recent disclosure decision. Nick, Thanks, John. That's right. I have two cases. Uh, the first one, uh, the COVID-19 case, in the matter of one Blackfriars, which, as you mentioned, is an interesting uh, case arising from the pandemic. Uh, this one looked at whether a trial should go ahead despite the COVID-19 pandemic and ongoing lockdown measures. The deputy judge in this case was not persuaded by the argument that proceeding to trial would be inconsistent with the Prime Minister's instruction to the UK population at that time to stay at home for, say, for very limited purposes. Is that not covered by the Coronavirus Act, Nick? Yes, you're quite right, John. The court noted that, in fact, the Coronavirus Act makes specific provision for conducting remote hearings. There has also been various guidance from the courts and the senior judiciary, all of which has sent a clear and consistent message that as many hearings as possible should continue remotely, as long as they can be done safely. Ultimately, the court refused the application to adjourn the trial and ordered the parties to cooperate to explore the ways in which a remote trial might proceed, including via an internet-based video communication platform and using electronic trial bundles. It looks time, like it's time for a technological revolution in the courts, no more paper bundles. Well, perhaps our electric typewriter or fax machine might even become redundant. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it's definitely a change. Uh, the judge did, of course, have to take into consideration the practicalities, such as the childcare commitments of expert witnesses and the bandwidth required for all parties to log in using their home broadband. But the fact that these considerations didn't prevent the trial going ahead does suggest that the courts are fully on board with this new remote way of working. The challenges that come with a lengthy trial and multiple witnesses will not necessarily prevent the court deciding to hold the trial remotely. I think it's a case of watch this space. Thank you, Nick. Um, look, as promised, that's all, all we're going to say on COVID-19 for today. But we're not finished on procedural matters. Uh, so, Nick, can you tell us about your second case, please? Certainly. Uh, the second case I have is Byers v Samba. This was an application to set aside or vary an order for standard disclosure. The high-level snapshot is this. The court refused the application, even though the defendant bank said that production of documents would contravene foreign criminal law or regulations. Here, this meant that the bank uh, risked prosecution by the Saudi regulatory authority and a fine, loss of banking license and or senior employees being imprisoned. Because the disclosure order stood and the bank was unable to comply, the upshot was that the bank's defence was struck out and it was debarred from defending the claims. A real no-win situation there. So what were the factors that persuaded the court that such a draconian sanction was necessary? Well, the variation of the disclosure order ultimately boiled down to the court balancing, on the one hand, the real risk of criminal or regulatory sanctions, and on the other, the importance of the documents to a fair trial. In this context, it's important to emphasise that the facts in this case were fairly extreme. Could you give us a flavour of what you mean by that, Nick? Because I recall decisions that have gone the other way. Is it about evidence or what's the basis for it? Of course. Uh, so firstly, in this case, the court was generous in its initial time frame for standard disclosure, allowing a full year because the bank said from the start that it would need to get regulatory consent to disclose certain documents. But then the bank wasted that time by failing to comply properly with information requests from the regulator. The bank couldn't demonstrate that it had adequately communicated with the regulator. And the court also seemed unimpressed that whilst delaying its own disclosure, the bank compelled the claimants to meet the original disclosure deadline. That's quite a list of factors. Yes, and on the facts of this case, the balancing exercise therefore came down in favour of disclosure. And because the court held that the bank's breach of the disclosure order was deliberate, serious and inexcusable, the court went ahead with the strikeout. Of course, this will always be a fact-specific balancing exercise, but it does highlight the difficulties faced by financial institutions caught between a rock and a hard place when it comes to disclosure obligations to the court on the one hand and the risk of criminal or regulatory sanctions in a foreign jurisdiction on the other. And it reminds us the courts aren't shy about flexing their muscles if they have to. Uh, thank you for that, Nick. Um, I believe we've got uh, links in the show notes to uh, blog posts for both of those cases. All right. Um, like all good radio shows, we're going to end this episode with a competition. Sadly, no prizes available, um, but Kerry's going to talk us through uh, the relevance of an ongoing competition class action. Over to you, Kerry. Yeah, that's right, John. So I've got the case of O'Higgins and Barclays Bank, which, as you say, is a competition class action, um, but it will certainly be of interest for institutions facing other types of class actions. So in this case, two applicants applied for a collective proceedings order in the ongoing Forex litigation. The question for the Competition Appeals Tribunal, or CAT, was whether it could determine at a preliminary hearing which of the two competing applicants could represent the potential claimant class. So the first point to note is that competition class actions in the UK operate on an opt-out basis. 
So this means that a claim can be brought on behalf of the whole class without claimants having to come forward and be named. But this requires the CAT to certify the proceedings. The CAT held that the question of who should represent the class should be determined at the same time as the CAT considers whether the case can proceed at all. In other words, it's not a preliminary issue that can be dealt with before getting into the substantive hearing. What could this mean for class actions generally, Kerry? Well, competition class actions are different from most other class actions in the English courts, including securities class actions, which are opt-in. Um, but this decision will still be of wider interest as it illustrates the dynamics at play in class actions and the issues which, in particular, funders need to weigh up when considering bringing claims. There's more detail on this in our blog post. A link is in the show notes. Thank you, Kerry. Um, well, podcasters, it was a short one uh, this month. That's brought us to the end of what we wanted to talk about. Um, we are um, all ears if you want to send in any suggestions um, about what you might want to hear on the podcast. We're very grateful uh, for your comments, thank yous and suggestions. Do please keep them coming in. And look, our best wishes to all of you. We're well aware of the challenges uh, that you're all facing. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us today from wherever you happen to be uh, in the globe. Um, from me, my thanks, first of all, to our guest speaker, Nick. Thank you very much for coming, Nick, and for such a clear explanation of your cases. Uh, to my co-host, Kerry. Thank you, Kerry, um, as ever. And to Alice behind the glass uh, for allowing us all uh, to get together wherever we are. Thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>